What would happen if a generation of believers gathered across racial, social, and cultural differences with one common purpose? To seek the heart of God and build relationships that will impact Chicago and the rest of the world. Can we be a church? Church, can we be a church where people from all walks of life, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, can find value and feel accepted? Is it possible for a church to model itself after the New Testament church in the first century and make an impact on a generation in the 21st century? During this series, during the origin series, we've been exploring the characteristics of this New Testament church. What were they like? How did they go about things? And every week we've been looking into what was this church like and what is applicable for us. And last week we had an opportunity to uh, travel with the person of Paul as he was in Athens and look at the chapter of Acts 17 and see what does it look like to have a relevant witness in a world that's lost. And we said that as a church, we're committed to three things. Building relationships intentionally with those that are lost without Christ. Adapting to the language and the culture of the people that we're going to reach out to. And then building a community that invests and invites so that people that are searching and seeking and asking would feel comfortable to come and explore with us. And those are the things that we looked at last week. And I don't know if you remember, but... Um, I told, well, today we're going to focus on truth, the core value of truth. And I don't know if you guys remember that I told you this story last week. Maybe those of you that weren't here, obviously I got to tell it again. But um, when I was in college, God really opened up my heart for the lost. And by the time I was in full-time ministry with InterVarsity, I was obnoxious about evangelism, just absolutely obnoxious. And I asked you, you know those kind of people? Remember I told that story? I was obnoxious about evangelism. I mean, nothing mattered but evangelism. It was like global missions. Well, yeah, because it's kind of like evangelism but overseas. But, I mean, diversity in worship, not so much. Social justice, not even on my radar. I mean, evangelism, 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 all the time. It's all I can think about, talk about. And one day, I was sitting in a meeting with a mentor of mine, a supervisor of mine. And he said to me, Sandra, could you explain to me what your philosophy of ministry is? Like, how do you kind of go about ministry? How do you do that? And what's important to you? And I said, oh, that's easy. It's like, nah, the Christian life is like 99% about evangelism. It's 99% about rescuing people, taking them out of this world, and rescuing them to get the heck out of what's going on here. And it's like 1% about like everything else. And he was like, um, okay. And so we began a discussion. I was like, yeah, I mean, Alan, I don't really understand. I'm going to trip up here. I don't really understand, you know, why people talk about these other things. I and mean, we don't need to change the world around us. I mean, that's not really important. And we don't need to be graduating doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and teachers. We need to be graduating missionaries and pastors and evangelists that will go out there and share the word of Jesus with everyone. This was me in my first year of ministry. And my mentor and my supervisor sat down with me very patiently over a long period of time, over about five years, I think. And he would open up the scriptures to me. And he would explore with me the idea of the kingdom of God. And what is the good news of the kingdom? What is the good news of the kingdom of God? Not from his own personal opinion, but from the truth of the scriptures. And he told me that the kingdom of God was that, or the, the gospel was that God through Jesus was establishing his kingdom and that we as a church were a part of that. He didn't take my value for lost souls away. He placed my value for lost souls in the context 
of the kingdom. And they began to integrate with values of worship, personal transformation, justice, reconciliation. It was the truth that he opened up to me. It was the truth of the scriptures that he read with me and taught me from that shaped my commitments and my values. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this morning that what we believe about who God is and what we believe about what God is about will shape your everyday decisions. The word of God is the authority and the compass of our lives. Completely relevant for all cultures at all times. And we as a church want to be on that journey together, searching the scriptures, looking for truth. And as we look again at the New Testament church in Acts 2, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These were a people that were committed to truth and teaching and educating people in what the scriptures say. So we don't form our vision and we don't form our purpose as a church around our dislikes and our likes and our opinions and what we feel is trendy. We form the purpose and the vision of our church out of the truth of the scriptures and what it means to walk with Jesus in the context that we're in today. So if we had to sum up what our church was about, we want to be a, tru- a church of truth. Because as the early church pursued truth, they changed the world. And we believe that today, as we become a church that pursues truth, that God can use us to change the world as well. We seek to be a city within a city, an alternative Chicago, that passionately loves Jesus Christ, intentionally engages an authentic community, and advances the cause of Jesus. This is the journey that we're on as we're in this series. And this morning, my theological mentor who sat patiently with me over five years is here. He's here with us this morning, and he'll be speaking about our core value of truth. Alan Mitsuo Wakabayashi is an InterVarsity staff worker that has been doing ministry for a long time. He was my staff worker in college. So make no mistake of it, he is old. Don't let him confuse you with his good looks and trendy shirt. He is old. He is the associate area director for the ministries at Northwestern University. So many of you have been mentored by him and taught by him. He is also the theological coordinator for the Great Lakes West uh, region. That means that he helps staff like me walk in their understanding of the scriptures and how to teach the scriptures. Um, He's a perpetual learner. I think he has degrees from everywhere. If you want to ask him about it, you can talk to him about it. And he is also the author of the book, Kingdom Come, How Jesus Wants to Change the World. And a lot of you have read this and have um, talked about how it has impacted your life. So we like to call him, we lovingly on our team call him the brainwasher. So I would like to invite you guys to welcome Alan Mitsuo Wakabayashi, the brainwasher. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much um, that you are at work in this man's life. God, we praise you for his journey, and we praise you for his patience as he walks young believers and young ministers in understanding how to search your scriptures and how to understand truth and how to, under, how to let that truth impact the way that we live our lives. So we bless him, and we ask that you would speak boldly through him. We thank you for all the years that he's given to ensuring um, that people are in your word, digging deeply and allowing you to transform. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, new community. 
Well, it's a real honor for me to be here. I was very honored when Bishop Hong invited me to come speak. <clears throat> and I'm so grateful for this church. Uh, as Sanders said, I've been on university staff for a long time. Let's see, it's been over 18 years, but the last, since 95, I've been Northwestern. And all that time, um, it's exciting for me because this is like reunion for me when I come to a new community because there's probably little, there's people from every generation, it seems like, um, and my little, flank, my little groupies are up here from <laughs> students. <here. clears throat> now, as we're going through this series, you know, Peter invited me to, you know, take a look, and I wanted to, I selected the one um, on truth, Christ, truth. Um, we'll look at that a little bit, and Sandra alluded to how the truth of the scriptures um, is the authority and relevant, uh, relevant for all peoples. But as we think about truth, the truth of the scriptures is dead truth apart from the fact that it points to the living truth, right? There is a living person who said, I am the truth. And so we are going to dive in a little bit to consider, because in a sense, if, you, if we just say scripture, it can easily turn into a textbook apart from a living, dynamic faith with a living person called Jesus who said he's the truth. And so we're going to angle more in the direction, less towards, you know, Scripture, how does it work, more towards who is this person that the Scriptures point to as truth. And so we'll be looking in the book of John. Now, in my time at Northwestern, Friday nights were our, you know, large group meeting, and starting back in the, you know, 95 and the 90s when I was with MEIV, um, and then more recently, as I work more with the Asian American chapter, um, every Friday night, I just needed a pop. I needed a Diet Pepsi, a Diet Coke to last me through that large group. Now, multi-ethnic university, they meet in Harris Hall. There's a pop machine downstairs. Usually no problem. But more recent years, as I go to Parks Hall, which is where Asian American university meets on Friday nights, there's this vending machine. It's this love-hate relationship with this pot machine. I mean, you, you understand those pot machines, right, where you're expecting something. It's supposed to be easy. You just put in some money, and you get out what you want. Well, this vending machine, it's with fear and trembling that I go every week to this vending machine because I never know what's going to happen. So some weeks, it's not taking dollar bills. Other weeks, you know, you push it, nothing. Push, 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 and then, you know, then you're the ones shaking the machine. Um, and then you wonder, should I put more money in? And I kid you not, one time, so I put my money in, Diet Pepsi to last me through Focus, large community for AA IV. I put my money in, hit the Diet Pepsi, and out pops... And I reach down, and I, 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 I kind of, whoa! <clears throat> I grab the bottle. It's Diet Pepsi, but it's not, it's not even just not cold. It's hot. <laughs> it's like it's been in a heater. Now, my frustration with that pot machine 
is often how I think we approach the Christian life. Because we, we, we like life to work neatly. I do this, and this happens. You know, I, with the Christian life, I put in faith, Bible study, prayer, wrap, you know, toss in some ministry at the church, and out pops the happy Christian life. And you and I know very well that there's no guarantee that that happy, carefree Christian life happens. All of us in this room have gone through times in our Christian life where it's miserable. And you, you're left wondering why. Because you, you're, you're racking your brains thinking, what did I do? Why, did I not do enough Bible study? Did I not do this? Did I not pray enough? And your world is, is out of control. And the inside is this deep-seated feeling that life should work like a pop machine. You just, put in what you, you just put in what's supposed to be put in, and you get out what you expect. And I'm, the more, the longer that I live the Christian life, the truth is, that is not the way the Christian life works. But the, the frustration, I think, is we like to fit things into neat formulas. X plus Y equals Z. Bible study plus prayer equals deep communion with God. And as we think about um, looking at the Christian life, it's, we like to put them in neat categories. Like, how do we determine who's in and who's out? How do we determine how to make things work in ministry? And we like, we, in our heads, we start dreaming about things to do because we think that if you follow this formula and this will happen. Or you do this and you get in. You don't do this, you're out. And granted, there's a measure of truth. and You know, I'm not here saying, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. You have to believe in Jesus to have eternal life, to get into the kingdom. But oftentimes, we make these firm categories. Which, you know, which political party you're part of, probably, you know, we like to connect that with who's in and who's out. But if, as we live our Christian life, I think we start realizing that the Christian life doesn't work that way at all. You know, when I was a kid growing up, when I thought about divorce, I had it, all, it was clear. If you are a committed Christian, you will have a happy marriage, you will not get divorced. And now I'm in a stage in life where many of my Christian friends and mentors have gone through painful divorces. And as I've gotten into the inside of the, the, the privilege of getting inside of some of those relationships, it's not so clear. It wasn't like, oh, this spouse walked away from God and therefore the marriage fell apart. It's so much more complicated. It's no easy formulas of why did this marriage mess up? There's no easy formulas. You know, and I've seen this in my own life and I some of our, my students in the past couple years have heard this story. You know, seven years ago, my wife, you know, we've been married. My wife, um, as a child, she had been sexually abused by her dad and her brother. And it had all been stuffed deep. So that by the time that we had met, 
There's no sign of that. I didn't know it was there. And yet, several years into our marriage, so seven years ago, it kind of just exploded on us. And we started realizing later that it's pretty common a phenomenon for those who've gone through childhood abuse that the coping mechanism is it gets stuffed, but it's got to come out sometime, and it usually explodes in midlife. And so that's exactly what happened. Like an avalanche, all the memories, the agony, and the pain started to rush out in my wife's life. You know, and I was sitting there living with this woman who is always sobbing, wouldn't let me touch her, and memories would come out at odd moments, whether, you know, she'd go through, uh, she'd do something, washing the dishes, and all of a sudden a memory would flash. It would come up in her dreams. Many times I was woken up by her screaming. And so she dipped into a suicidal depression. And our world just went, you know, it's crazy, upside down. And, I, and here I was. So I'm on staff, you know, Sandra, you know, I'm helping Sandra with her theological, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help staff. I'm working with students. And I had come to a place in my staff life where I felt like I'm finally hitting the groove. Like, I know what I'm doing. I know who I am. I love what I do. And all of a sudden, this broke out, and I was a mess. How can I serve students and staff? My wife had been enrolled in a Ph.D. program at the University of Chicago. Um, she had won all these awards at Wheaton College in her grad program, so they said, you've got to try for Ph.D. studies. And she got in. She got a scholarship to the University of Chicago in ancient Near Eastern studies. It's a grueling program. She was doing fine. And then in the middle of the program, halfway through, this is, this is when all this broke out. So she drops out of the program. And so all the questions start coming up. God, what are you doing? I thought you led us here. You led us to my wife to, you know, my wife to go take her PhD studies. You led me to do student work. It's all a mess. And I started asking, the, I started saying to God, God, why? I've done so much for you. I've given my life to students and to your kingdom. How can you let this happen to me? And there it was, the pop machine theology of the Christian life that I didn't think was there. And even the way the Christian life, you know, then the other formula that I thought was, well, you pray really hard, and then God will come through and work a miracle. And so, first year, I'm thinking, okay, God, it's just a year, right? Just one year. So at the end of this year, we could give glory to God and, and, you know, my wife and I could sing praises to you about the the way that you brought healing while one year turned into two years, three years, four, five, six, seven. We're still in it. It hasn't come to the other side. Now, my wife is much better. So life is very stable But she hasn't come to the other side and come to terms with everything in her life. And so this formula of you pray, 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 and then God will work a miracle. Well, at some level, there's truth that he does respond to our prayers, but not in these neat, tidy packages, right? (laughs) 
This is the reality. And as we look into the scriptures, there's always going to be a tendency, I think, for us to want things to be simple. And so in the passage that we're going to look at, the heart of the passage is the very well-known verse, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I've used this passage, I've said this passage so many times, and I've, at, before preparing for this message, it was a neat category. This is the passage that I use to fight against the relativism of our, of our culture. This is the passage that says that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, that you have to believe in Jesus, and that gets you in. Otherwise, you're not in. Now, while there's truth to that, I realize it's not so simple at all. John 14, 6 can't be put into this pot machine kind of theology. But I think what happens if we're ready and willing to listen is that God wants to speak not in neat, organized, neat packages and formulas, but God wants to speak a powerful and relevant word into the messiness that we live of our life. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage. So if you're ready and willing, let's pray. Invite the Spirit to come. Invite Him to speak to us, not in neat and organized packages, but to speak a living, dynamic, relevant word that meets us in our messiness. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are a good God and that in Jesus Christ we know that you are a good and loving God who has come to bring salvation and to lead us home one day into the kingdom. Spirit, we ask that this morning as we look into your word that it would not just be written letters on a page but the avenue through which you would actually speak to us not in intellectual messages merely, but actually a living, personal word to us. Lord, open us up. Would you give me clarity that your Spirit's anointing give me the the power and ability to make this clear? And would you give all of us the openness of heart and mind to let you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Let's look at the passage. We are in John 13. We're going to start in verse 31. And I think it's up on the screen. If you want to follow with me in your Bibles, that's fine. Um, John 13, 31. And we're going to take section, little sections by section. But as you remember the setting, right, this is right before Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's with his disciples. And so he's, these are some parting words as he's speaking to them. Verse 31, when he was gone, speaking of uh, Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told you, just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, 
so that you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And stop there. Now, I don't want to get into all things. I just want to get the, the lay of the land of the scene here. So, Jesus is just talking to his disciples, and he's communicating that stuff is going to happen, you know, it's going to be glorified. But the emotion is dealing with the fact that he says, I am going away. I am going away from here, and you can't follow me. And so Peter, of course, Peter is the one who gets up and says, I'll follow you, I will even die for you. And Jesus responds, will you really? You're going to disown me three times. Now, not only does this reveal a weakness in Peter that maybe he didn't understand or wasn't willing to admit, it shows and reveals to his disciples just how bad it is going to get, right? Something bad is coming so bad that Peter is going to deny even knowing Jesus three times. And so, with it comes this mood of what is coming. Now, all of us, we know. We know the end of the story. Jesus dies and resurrected. Happy ending. But the disciples don't know this. So they're walking into this situation and says, all that they know is that Jesus is leaving them. They can't go with. And it's going to get so bad that Peter is going to deny even knowing Jesus. And it's into that situation that he begins in chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Now another, probably more appropriate translation for the do not be troubled is more like stop your hearts from being troubled. It's not saying don't ever let your hearts be troubled. The, the force of that word, the wording there is stop it. There's a decisive stop doing that. Because obviously their hearts are troubled. How can they not be troubled? The Jesus that they're following is leaving. The Jesus that they've given, they've left everything to follow is leaving. And something's going to happen where Peter's going to deny him three times. Their hearts are troubled. But Jesus says, stop. Stop your hearts from being troubled. And the word for troubled actually conjures up, not word like this fear of um, being a little nervous or slightly fearful, there's a connotation of terror. That word for troubled has connotations of terror. Now, as we listen to the scriptures and we hear the word speak, sometimes there's a, there's a sense that I wonder, do some of us here in this room need to hear Jesus, those words come out and speak to us right now? That for whatever reason, our hearts are troubled. And the words of Jesus are breaking out of just the sermon and saying to us right now, stop. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he goes on, but the flip side of not letting your hearts be troubled is this phrase, trust in God, trust also in me. Now it's not clear whether he's saying trust in two things, like trust in God and trust in me, or in the NIV there's a footnote that says, you already trust in God, trust also in me. I think that second, the footnote is actually probably more correct. But what Jesus is saying is trust in me. But let me stop and say, you know, the the NRSV translates the word believe. And I I like the NIV a little bit better because it communicates this more trusting, ongoing thing. Because sometimes we look at that verse and we think, oh, believe. How do you believe? You put your faith in Jesus, you say the prayer, you commit, done. But think about the context that Jesus is saying, trust in me, believe in me. They are walking into darkness. We know that it's going to end up all good. Resurrection is going to come. But they don't know that. And so think about Jesus knowing what's ahead. He knows that they're going to walk into a time where they don't know what's going on. They don't know why it's happening. And it seems as if God has left. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what the disciples are feeling as they walked to the cross? Everything grows dark. They don't know why. They don't know. They think all hope is gone. Their Messiah is sitting up on a cross dying. And it's into that situation that Jesus says, trust in me. This is not a lighthearted, just believe and agree that this is true, is it? Oftentimes in the Christian circles, when we say, believe in Jesus, what do we mean? Agree to these theological points. Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for us, and he's coming again. That is not the kind of belief or trust that Jesus is talking about here, is it? It is about trusting Jesus, even when he doesn't seem to be there, when (coughs) you don't know what's going on. (coughs) Excuse me water. (laughs) That's the kind of trust and belief that Jesus is talking about. You know, believing, putting your faith in Jesus is not this easy laid back thing. The kind of trust and belief that Jesus is talking about is about hanging on even when you don't understand. It's about hanging on even when it gets dark and all hope seems lost. It means saying to Jesus, I'm going to trust that you are there even though it's dark and it seems like you're absent. Jesus, I'm going to trust you that you are a good God and that you know what you're doing even though it feels like my life is out of control. Jesus says, I am going away. You can't follow. It's going to get so bad, Peter, that you're going to deny me three times. But Peter, disciples, trust in me. He goes on and talks about in verse 2. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus starts talking about going to the Father's house, preparing rooms for his disciples, and then coming back at some point to take him with him to that, to that place. Now, there's a lot of questions about what he means by my father's house. Craig Blomberg, one of a New Testament scholars, suggests that a house, a, a well-known house with many rooms would have been the temple. The temple would have been, and you know, Jesus would say, it would, we could understand him saying, this is my father's house. But instead of referring to the physical temple in Jerusalem, which is going to be destroyed 40 years later, I wonder if Jesus is referring to something else. If you have your Bibles, turn, it's not going to be on PowerPoint, so grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 21, verse 22. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen along. Here, John, the same guy who's writing the, the gospel that they're reading, we're reading right now, here John is communicating his vision of the future of the coming kingdom of God the city of God. And in verse 22, he writes, I did, not, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And he goes on and talks about this city. I think what Jesus is talking about to his disciples is, look, I need to go prepare a place for you in this future city of God. And in order for me to do that, we all know now that he had to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to free us from our rebellion, to make entry into the city of God, the kingdom of God that I'm sure Peter has been talking about a lot at this church. I've heard some of his sermons. Um, the kingdom of God, I think Peter said it's like the plate where God's people are under God's rule, something else. Three things. But what the future is bringing, the city of God, the kingdom of God in all its fullness. And I think what, what Jesus is talking about is that, look, I need to go and make way for you so that you have a place, a room in this city, and that I'll come back. And so later, in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So I think what Jesus is talking about here is, look, I need to go away. I need to die on the cross to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, the city of God, and I'll come back to take you with me. At least Jesus here... It's interesting, Jesus does not lay out all the steps of what he's going to do to his, for his disciples. You know, I want Jesus to say, okay, this is what's going to happen tomorrow, and then the next day, and then the next day. Jesus doesn't seem to do that for his disciples, even though they're walking into the darkest moment of history. What Jesus does, though, is at least he gives this ultimate hope of what's going to happen in the end. 
that we will, find, we will have a place in the city of God. And in the, the, when Jesus talks about, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I want to stop and reflect a little bit about what that means in this context. You know, Thomas is the one that says, how do we, you know, you're the way, what is, well, for, before he even says that, Jesus says, you know the way. And Thomas is like, how do we know the way? We don't, we don't even know where you're going. I am navigationally challenged. So, you know, some people have that internal compass that you're driving in a car, you know exactly which way north is and where. I'm not like that. My wife gets so frustrated at me. And, you know, I like to be, I'm the man, so I know where I'm going, right? <clears throat> I mean, right now, I couldn't tell you which way northwestern is, is it? That way, this way. Okay, so I like, and what helps me is maps. I like maps because I, you know, I follow with and look at the streets and highways. I need maps. Jesus, when he talks about being the way, the truth, and the life, do you notice that what he's communicating is that, the, that life is not like a map? It's not like planning a trip with a map. Jesus doesn't give us a map, but a person. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's giving us himself, not a step-by-step navigational map quest map to a destination. We may not know what the future looks, our immediate future looks like, but the key that Jesus is talking about to his disciples and to us it's about hanging on to a person. It's not finding a road map through life, but hanging on to a person. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I, let me clarify. Andy, could you come up here? Andy. My, this is my staff colleague and friend. <clears throat> so Andy, just do this. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, oftentimes when we interpret this verse, we like to say Jesus is a doorway that we go through into eternity. Isn't that how we often take the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life? It's a doorway. So you have to, you have to believe in this guy, believe that he died on the cross for us, well, not Andy, <clears throat> and then you go through. But there's a subtle difference, I think. Jesus is not saying he's a doorway in this verse. What is the way? You know, the, the word that's translated for way is actually road. Road. And so, I think what Jesus is saying is, I am the way. What do we do is not walk through a doorway. We hang on! <laughs> okay, thanks. <clears throat> I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not about going through Jesus, but going with Jesus. Into darkness, messiness, confusion. And as we walk with and cling to this Jesus, he takes us into our future. He does things that we never expected. Think about what happened for these disciples. They go through the darkest moment of history 
Jesus comes up on the other side with resurrection glory. The kingdom of God was established at the cross in a way that the disciples had no clue. When Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, and the life, it's not about believing in Jesus' doctrinal points. It's not about putting this one-time commitment saying, I've done it, I'm good, I'm in. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and when he says, trust in me, it's about this hanging on kind of faith. Believing, a trusting, a clinging to Jesus. Because the way is a person, not a road map. The way is not formulas that you figure out in the Christian, you know, Sometimes you think the Christian life is about principles. You do these principles, and everything should work out good. And you and I know that doesn't always work. You know, New Community's core value, um, you can look at it in your bulletin. The core value, the first one is Christ, truth, the living word of God, the authority and compass over all areas of life, completely relevant for all cultures at all times. But notice, it, the whole thing about truth, it's under, the, the, it's under Christ as the heading. The truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of this is about a person and not just about written words on a page. It's not simply about believing the right things, but believing in the right person and hanging on to that person. You know, in my journey with my wife, as we're walking through this, the beginning was so dark that there were times where I just thought, I'm done. It's over. I'm going to quit becoming a Christian. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm going to leave university staff, and I may even end this marriage with my wife. It's too painful. I can't hang on. I remember distinctly sitting driving on Foster Avenue going east, turning north on Ashland, and as I was waiting for that left turn, my thought was, what else could I do with my life? What would it be like if I just quit staff, quit being a Christian, left my wife, and started over with somebody new? No pain, whatever. And something in me said the same words that, you know, Jesus earlier in John, when people were leaving him, he said to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And his disciples said, but where else can we go to find the words of eternal life? And those words came up, and I was like, dang it, I know too much about Jesus. (laughs) I know too much. There is no life There's no truth. There's no way to true life apart from this Jesus. And so I kept hanging on. And through the journey, it's been profoundly, this profound transformation of of finding Jesus not taking me out of darkness, but being with me in darkness. Opening my eyes to the redemptive image of the cross. The darkest moment of history, yet what was God doing? Bringing the salvation of the world. 
that God brings redemption and resurrection, but it's often through the darkest periods and events of life. Jesus is doing things in, we, doing things in me in ways I had never anticipated. You know, I, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What I'm learning is that the way to the future, the way onward in the Christian life is not just right doctrine about Jesus because truth is a person. The way is a person. You know, I'm a theology guy. I like reading books. Sandra knows this. <coughs> when my friends move me, they complain because it's, all these, it's mostly books. Um, but there's something so much more than theology. Not that theology is bad in and of itself, but theology and right doctrine has to serve the greater idea of walking with the truth, the person of Jesus. You know, the Christian life is not like a pop machine. It doesn't work where you just put in certain things and then you get pop out this happy Christian life. When Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, it's not just some formula about how you get in. It is actually this call to persevering faith in this person called Jesus. The truth and the life that we are made for is found only in this Jesus. And it's through clinging to him, even when we are so confused, even when it's so dark that we don't understand. Because ultimately, I'm realizing, at least in my own life, what does Jesus want to do in my life? It's about me and him that union and relationship with him. One of the questions that kind of jerked my heart around through the darkest moments was, Jesus asked me, Alan, I thought you said I was enough. And I had to admit, I wasn't sure. And I had to grow into this perspective that Following Jesus is not so much about what he can give me, but about him. And what he gives me is, is himself. It's not about all the other things. Great, he gives us blessings, you know, our provisions, marriages, relationships, church. No doubt, he gives us all those things. But the ultimate thing that Jesus wants to, to get home in us is that he's enough. That he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father except through him. No one gets in to the glorious city of God, into the kingdom, except through this relationship with Jesus. And that faith, belief, it's not assenting, agreeing to right truths and doctrines, but a persevering holding on to this Jesus. Now, in conclusion, I just want us to take a moment to reflect and to listen and to pray. I don't want to take it for granted. Some of you guys are here. Life is fine. Everything's coasting. 
and hopefully this will be, this message meets you in a sense of it helps you get a perspective of life in Jesus. But I'm sure there's others of us here that for whatever reason, things have gotten dark. Do you hear Jesus calling you when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Trust in me. Do you hear him speaking to you? Lord, as we come before you, would you help us to hear from you, to open our hearts even in the confusion and pain that that some of us may be going through. Lord, help us to hear you and respond to you in the next, in the coming moments as we listen to you, respond to you in the quiet of our hearts.